You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. At City Church, one of the things that we, we give a lot of space to and value very much, as well as worshipping Jesus in, in song, uh, is, is teaching, scripture, preaching the Bible. Uh, and for the last few months, uh, while we've been in various phases of lockdown, uh, what we've tried to do is focus on something called the lectionary. Uh, and if you're from a traditional church background, then you know very well what lectionaries are. Uh, but if you're free church, Anglican, something else, Pentecostal, swinging from the rafters, then, then a lectionary might not, we might not be familiar. Um, and let me explain briefly, a lectionary is a, is a selection of biblical texts um, that basically allows the church and the preacher over the space of a few years to experience and to be impacted by probably more scripture I guess, than than quite a few Christians might read themselves privately, uh, but also it it enables the church to to escape from what might perhaps be the preacher's pet subject uh, or the preacher's favorite text. Uh, And so we've been doing that. We've been using uh, the Lutheran church's lectionary. It's quite similar to the Anglican lectionary as it happens. Uh, But it's been quite interesting because uh, each week, as as one of us has preached, it's uh, it's been a little bit of a, well, let's see what happens this week. But there's often a real timeliness about the text that is preached and what God seems to be doing in and among us at that point. So it's been really good fun. However, having extolled the virtues of the lectionary, I'm going to tell you this morning that I'm going to make a little bit of a deviation from the lectionary for the next few weeks. I've just been thinking as I was preparing this week that it's, it's great to, to, uh, to be together in one place again. I don't know how long we'll have. We'll see what happens with the Indian variant or Delta variant as it's now called. Uh, but until the point we're told we can't meet anymore again, which hopefully won't come, I'd like to spend a few weeks working through the New Testament letter of Philippians. It just seems good to me for a few weeks on the bounce now. Let's focus in on one particular text and unpack that together. Uh, and also, I mean, well, to tell you the, a little bit, in a nutshell, the story, I, I turned to one of the, to the lectionary texts uh, and one of them blew up in my face a little bit in terms of a feeling of, wow, I think God's maybe saying something here. Uh, and it was a text from 2 Corinthians. And then I had the idea, perhaps you could preach through 2 Corinthians up until the summer. And then I sort of totted up how much there was in 2 Corinthians and thought, maybe not. And then I realized, ha, but Philippians, Paul says quite a lot of the same things in Philippians. And so, ergo, Philippians for the next few weeks. So we're going to be in Philippians. Uh, And I'll give you a little bit of a background to this letter before we hear a reading from Philippians chapter 1. It's a a letter written by Paul, who was uh, an early Christian leader. Uh, It's a letter that was written in perhaps the early 60s of the first century, Uh, And it's written to a church that Paul actually planted himself. He established a new church in Philippi, a Roman colony, in maybe 49 or 50 AD. Uh, And Paul is writing now to this church from prison. He's a prisoner. He's under Roman guard. He's probably literally chained to a Roman soldier or centurion. And so he's, he's writing to the Philippian church Uh, to encourage, to build up, to strengthen, but also 
a part of what he's doing is thanking them for a rather generous financial gift that he had received from them. Uh, we'll find out that towards the end of Philippians, but uh, one of the, the church, perhaps even a leader called Epaphroditus, uh, it's not a name to try and repeat after a couple of glasses of wine, by the way, uh, has visited Paul and has brought a gift from the church in Philippi. And so part of his, part of his intention in writing this letter is to thank the church for their gift. And in the process of doing that, he also addresses some issues which he has heard from Epaphroditus about things that are going on in and amongst the community. Now, you may be interested in this, you may not, I won't go on about it for too long. This particular style of this letter is known as a letter of friendship. So in the Greco-Roman world of which Paul was a part and Philippi was a part, this particular kind of letter, it's got a genre. It's a particular type of letter. Uh, and you'll find if you, if you are inclined to pick up a commentary and explore it a little bit, you'll find quite a lot that's said about the form and the way that that works. But it's quite wonderful, isn't it, that Paul writes not just as a leader, not just as a figure of authority in the church, but he writes a letter of friendship. And the language of the letter, the whole thing is shot through with language of friendship, fellowship, participation, partnership, heart-to-heart stuff. And so we're going to get into this letter of Philippians until, we'll be in it till probably the end of August, at the end of August, the end of July, when we have a slight break and things change a little. Anyway, that's enough for the moment by way of introduction. Let's uh, have the words on the screen and you'll hear my lovely voice reading the scripture. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So I'm going to jump in at verse 6 this morning. Paul has opened up his letter. He's spoken about who he is, introduced himself. 
spoken about the church in Philippi as saints, as holy ones. And now Paul begins to express his gratitude to God for the church in Philippi. He celebrates their partnership in the gospel. And the word partnership there, this is the, the NIV translation that, uh, that we've used this morning. Um, I often use the NRSV. Um, the NIV, as far as Philippians goes, probably catches some of the more colloquial sense of Philippians. Uh, and so I've gone a plump for the NIV for the moment. But the word partnership is a, a really rich word. Uh, and the Greek word behind that is koinonia. And it's often translated fellowship um, or partnership. But it can really mean something more like participation. It's, it's more than just kind of being together. There's a, a joinedness and a, a unity and a, and a connectedness with this word. And so Paul's talking about these Christians who are in the Roman, the Roman province, the Roman colony of Philippi as partners, participants in the gospel with him since the day that they first believed. And it's really quite profound, because this is all part of his thanking them for their financial gift, by the way. And what we really, what we learn as we, as we get towards the end of the letter, is that this gift, their giving to him, Paul regards as a part of sharing in his apostolic ministry, in the gospel, in the proclamation of the gospel. So joined together is the Christian church, so unified are its leaders and the body and Christ and the Spirit, that for the body to participate by being generous to a leader in need, in Paul's case, a leader in prison, is the same thing as to partner with him in the gospel. You know, sometimes we can be conned into thinking, well, unless we're holding evangelical crusades, evangelistic crusades every week, well, we're not really a gospel church or we're not really doing the gospel. But for Paul, it's much broader He's on the cutting edge, if you like, although he's now in prison, but he's traveling, that's his ministry. He travels, he preaches, he plants churches. And in Philippi, they get to partner with him in the gospel, to participate in the gospel through generosity, through sharing, through an act of love. That needs to be profoundly encouraging for us, brothers and sisters. We don't need to be crazy evangelists, although if some of us are, then that's really good, because we partner together in the gospel. Paul says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. And now that's super interesting. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. You know, if you've prayed for people in small group or in family or in church before, then you might know that it's not always with joy, is it? It doesn't always feel like, hurrah! Sometimes the prayer is more like, oh Lord. And yet Paul says, I always pray with joy. And the interesting thing is, again, as we work through this letter, we will discover that not everything is hunky-dory in the church in Philippi. There are some issues, as there are in every church. And yet Paul will say, I pray with you always with joy. Now, why is that? What, what lets Paul pray with joy for all of the Christians in Philippi? Well, part of it is obviously their partnership in the gospel. That's one of the sources of his joy. You share in Christ Jesus with me. You're participants in Christ. 
And so that elicits joy in his prayers and confidence, I might say. And when you pray for somebody and you know they share in the gospel with me, that gives you confidence to pray for them and to ask God for big stuff because they're not just some random bod who God's separate from, but they're sharing, they're participants with you. So the participation in the gospel is one source of his joy, but there's also something else. Paul's confidence, he says, comes from this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Now, who's that? Who is the who? He who began a good... Some people would say, well, Paul's talking about himself. Paul planted the church, and he's obviously committed to polishing off the job. Except it talks about completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, you know, unless Paul's expecting Jesus to return very soon, which he may have been, then maybe he's not thinking about himself. He did plant the church after all, maybe that, but what's going on? Well, I think that Paul thinks that it's God's work in Philippi. Paul the Apostle thinks that the existence of the church community in Philippi is not simply his work. It's not his thing. The Philippians are not his church in that sense, but they were planted and established by God. And Paul is very confident that if God began a good work in you, in Philippi, then he will see it through to completion because God is faithful. And when God starts stuff, he always finishes it. Oh, were that true for me, my wife would love it. It would be wonderful. There would be no more teaspoons left at the bottom of a dirty washing up bowl. There would be no more half-finished pot plants in the garden. There would be that I would have strimmed the edge by now, wouldn't I? I would have, things would get done. Things would get completed. Paul's confidence is this. God started it. God carries it. God will finish it. See? I want to challenge you in love and affection. When you look around the room today, when you looked at your screen a few weeks ago, were you thinking, we're done for? It's not the same. Are you thinking, well, our days are numbered as a church? Are you thinking, we're not going to last very long because of A, B, C, whatever it might be? Well, I want to challenge you to reflect on this. He who began a good work in us will see it through to completion until the day of Christ. God began something. God is at work, and God will finish what he started. Now, I wonder if you can hear, incidentally, the echo of the creation story in this verse. In Genesis, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And to the Philippians, he writes, he who began a good work in you. The same faithful God who began a creation work, finished a creation work and said, it's very good, has begun a good work in the church. And by gum, he will see it through 
to completion. And so that's where his confidence is to pray. You know, when you're praying for yourself or for someone else, it's a really false confidence to just trust that they can change themselves. You know, how many times do you catch yourself, I do often, I find myself praying, oh God, will you just help so-and-so to change in this area? As if it's a little part them and a little part God, and if we sort of shake it together, then out comes something a little bit better. Well, Paul's confidence is not in, well, the Philippians are kind of all right, and God's a little bit better than them, and if we shake that up, then maybe they'll come out the other end all right. No, no, no. God began. God continues. God will finish. Your salvation, individually, our salvation corporately, is his from start to finish. Right? You get, you get it? Have I labored the point sufficiently now that you're starting to get bored? Well, you shouldn't be bored. You should be glad. Because you need to hear it over and over and over and over and over again. God's at work in the church. In fact, to quote Paul from elsewhere, from Ephesians chapter 2, the church is God's workmanship. Some people talk about the church as an institution, you know. Sometimes it's, you can hear it in and amongst churches, the language of, well, I think what the church needs to do, which often means what the elders of the church need to do, right, <laughs> is X, Y, Z, or what the, the staff team, or the, and the, the church becomes this thing out there, this club that I opt in and out of from time to time, this content provider that, that I kind of glean from now and again, this, this institution that I sometimes grudgingly go along with their plans. Nah, we are God's workmanship. There's no content provider vibe here. If there's anything of that rattling around in your heart and your mind, extract it, take it into the yard, and put it out of its misery. We are God's workmanship. Now, that doesn't mean that we're perfect and we've got it all down. Very, very far from it. But the reality is that God has called us. I read a profound... Actually, now, do you know what? I'll save that. See how... That's maturity right there. <laughs> that's growing up. <laughs> That'll do for another day. Now, the fact that the church is a work in progress, the fact that it's called by God and it's God's work, but it's still a work in progress. It's still heading somewhere. It's still on the move. We're still a pilgrim people in a sense. We're still kind of exiles in some ways. Can lead to misunderstandings and tensions and troubles. It does in Philippi. It does amongst us. And as I was preparing this and thinking about that, it, it, something jogs my memory. Uh, and if you'll forgive me for a few moments, just uh, ladies, I'd like to address the, the men of City Church, and you can count yourselves in it to some extent as well, but I just, there's something that, that came to mind. And a few years ago, guys, there was this book came out by an American author called David Murrow. And someone in the church has got my copy, so if you can cough it up, that'd be helpful. Um, that's not why it came to mind. Uh, David Murrow wrote a book called Why Men Hate Going to Church. You might have your own reasons for it. But one of the points that the author makes, and okay, remember this is an American context, so it's not entirely the same, 
But one of the points that the author makes is that for many men, church feels like this never-ending project. It's something that started, but it just never finishes. It just goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And every week's kind of the same, you know. It's like a welcome, a bit of liturgy, some songs, a sermon, communion, go home. And the next week the same, and every week the same. And so for some men, that feels just tortuous, because if you're the sort of go-getting, goal-crunching, achievement-oriented bloke who likes to start something and finish it and sit back and go, yes, then church can feel really, really boring because there's no end in sight. And so David Murrow argues that that's one of the reasons why men and men in North America, but perhaps men in Northern Europe, hate going to church because they're bored. They're bored because it doesn't, church doesn't allow men to sufficiently be men, to kind of be achievement-oriented, to start a project and finish it and go, yes! I feel quite sure that there's, there's some value, some real merit in what David Murrow says. I'm fairly convinced that he's he tapped into something in the male psyche quite accurately. Project-oriented, goal-oriented, achievement-oriented. Not all men, but that's often the way that men roll, right? But I do want to push back a bit against what David Murrow says about church. Because I think that on the basis of what Paul says in Philippians 1, there really, really, really is an end goal in sight. And it's an end goal that relativizes a million other lesser goals. It's wonderful to start a project and to finish a project. But the end of this project, which is in God's hands, is the day of Christ. And one of the reasons I think that men hate going to church is that the goal of God's purposes is something that is out side of their control. It's not something that can be manufactured by human effort. It's not something that we can get our grubby hands on and morph and mold and squeeze into our own image. It's something that we are sucked into and brought into the flow of. And it's something that God will do on the day of Christ. It's a day of radical, rich, deep fulfillment. Every single sense of fulfillment, guys, you've ever, ever experienced at the end of a project well done is just a tiny hinter at the fullness and completion that you will experience on the day of Christ. And I want to argue, therefore, that this goal this end point speaks to the very deepest places of your heart as a man and as a woman too, but I'm speaking just to the men at the moment. And it calls out of us as men the virtues of courage, integrity, resilience, faithfulness, because it's a goal that demands that a man grows up into Christ over the course of a whole lifetime. It's not the kind of goal that gives you the buzz of starting something and finishing it. 
It's something that requires your deepest heart for the whole of your life. It's something that has nothing to do with ego and everything to do with the grace of God. Perhaps the real reason some men hate going to church then is not the absence of a goal, but it's the insistence upon a higher goal that doesn't allow a man to languish in some kind of perpetual adolescence of adrenaline-fueled distractions, amusements, projects, and entertainments. There's nothing wrong with starting and finishing. There's nothing wrong with having goals. There's nothing wrong with being achievement-oriented. But you must understand that the goal of the church is the day of Christ. And it's a goal you can't manufacture, but it's a goal that speaks to the deepest places in you and calls for remarkable courage. You want to know what masculinity, manliness really is? It's living faithfully, resiliently, confidently, courageously toward that day. Now, I know I've just leaned on the men a little bit. Sorry, girls. I hope that there's stuff in there that you can glean for yourself. And some of you are maybe thinking, yes, amen. Get him, God. Well, God will get you as well, so watch out. (laughs) I hope you can see this sense that who we are together as a church, our identity together, our goal is not minor, small plops along the way, but is the fullness of Christ on the day of Christ. And the whole of Paul's letter, the whole of Philippians, is shot through with a sense of what it means for the church to live now, men and women to live now as the people of God in light of this great and glorious goal. The day of Christ is where every single one of us is ultimately heading. But you and I know very well that within every church community, and ours is no different, there are levels of Christian maturity and understanding. There are very mature believers, there are very new believers. There are very new believers that are quite mature, and there are very old believers who are quite immature. There's a sliding scale, right? The church is always a mixed bag in terms of how far it is living into and up to the call of God in Christ. And Paul knows that's true about the Philippians. And so he writes to encourage them to keep nudging them on towards that goal. And there's a little tiny phrase that he uses in this first chapter. You might not have picked up on it because we we scuttled through the scriptures and then we, we moved on quite quickly. But there's a little phrase that that is really rich in significance. Given given the sliding scale, given the mixed bag, given the the nature of church, that we're all different and we're all in various stages of discipleship, Paul says this. He says, in all my prayers for all of you, then he says it's right for me to feel this way about all of you. And then he says, All of you share in God's grace with me. And then he says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
all of you. He also says it at the end of chapter one. So five times in a chapter and four times within the space of six verses, Paul talks about all of you, all of you. And, you know, and within that all of you, there are grumblers and complainers and egomaniacs and moralists and cliques and factions and idlers and idolaters. And yet Paul talks about all of you. And when you hear that all of you, it's about the affection and the heart and the longing and the joy and the gladness and the hopes and the confidence of Christ for the church. It's not just Paul's fairly confident. He's confident in God that all of you will be presented blameless before him on the day of Christ. He's confident in the work of God again. He's confident that the worst grumbler the world has ever seen will grow up into Christ and stand blameless before him. He's confident that the, the, the most insular clique amongst the Philippians can actually become an outward-facing, loving, inclusive micro-community within a wider community. He's confident that the biggest egomaniac in the congregation can somehow become selfless, can somehow become others-oriented. He's confident that the hurt and the broken can be healed and renewed and restored and become not victims of life, but participants in the gospel through the healing power of God's spirit at work in them. All of you. You've got to hear, friends, God's voice affirm that of us. All of you. All of us. And because of all this confidence, because of his joy in the gospel, because he's confident that God will see this work through to completion, he prays. It's good, isn't it? That's the upshot of his confidence. He prays. It's not, oh yeah, great. Let go and let God. Fabulous. <laughs> nah. He's confident, so he prays. And what a prayer it is. This is the problem of having it all in a movie, isn't it? We can't just skip to the, uh, the text. Not got time to unpack this fully. But he says, this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. He prays that they become more and more loving. Not just that they know this fuzzy sentimental feeling, but that love would abound with knowledge. You know, love without knowledge becomes sentimentality and fluff. Knowledge without love becomes coldness and hardness and cynicism and just coldly correct church police type thing. No, no, love with knowledge and depth of insight. I pray for that for you. So that, so that you may be able to discern what is best these are relationship terms. These are lifestyle terms. It's not just, well, fill us with your love so that we can make one good decision. That's important. But what Paul is praying is that the church will be a people who are so permeated with love and with knowledge and insight that they will be equipped to make endless good life decisions 
on the journey to the day of Christ. That's why he prays. Fill them with love, with knowledge, with depth of insight, so you can be a discerning people, so that you can be wise. A friend of mine who's a pastor in Liverpool has a, a thing on his door, his office door, it says, have you tried praying about it? I'm like, yes, absolutely. Before you WhatsApp round and grumble, or ask a question or complain, have you tried praying about it? Have you tried saying, God, fill me with your love, with knowledge and depth of insight that I might discern what's best? If it's good enough for Paul, it's good enough for you, right? And so that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. You know, in Paul's language, righteousness sometimes is a gift given to us in Christ. He alone is our righteousness. He is our right standing with God. He is all our hope and stay. He's our confidence. He's our acceptance. He's our peace with God. He's all of that. But here, righteousness is very much in terms of the right, moral, virtuous aptitude towards stuff. It's about what you do here. And Paul wants the church to be filled with love, to discern, to know, in order to choose wisely, in order that we might become more and more Jesus-like over the long haul of a life that is going towards the day of Christ and completion and fulfillment and fullness. And all of that is directed towards the praise and the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, what are we here for? What do we exist for? We're here for the glory of God. We're here for the honor of Christ. We're not here to indulge in moral therapeutic deism. There's a God that just helps me maximize my life potential so that I can really be happy. We're here for the glory of God. And in the fourth century, St. Augustine of Hippo could say, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Mark my words, men. Point at you again now. <laughs> Your heart will never rest until it rests in God. You will always be restless, always. Always having to start something else, a new hobby, a new something, a new project, a new whatever. The furthest extreme is a new girlfriend, a new wife. Some men do that. Why do they do it? Because their hearts are restless. And Augustine's right. They're restless until they rest in God. Here's how you rest in God. You turn from your sin. You receive his forgiveness. You accept Jesus as your sole righteousness before God. You ask him to fill you with the Holy Spirit. And then you spend time meditating on that reality. And you spend time meditating on the day of Christ. And you allow that goal to shape every single other lesser goal in your life. And you live courageously, valiantly, resiliently, faithfully by the power of his spirit into and towards that goal. It counts for men and women. It counts for all of us. And it's all to the glory and praise of God.
Why don't we pray for just one moment and then we're done for this morning. Oh God, you know we're hopeless. You know we're a mess. And we're so tired of trying to kid ourselves that we're all right because, well, we all really know that we're all hopeless and you know that we're hopeless, but you've loved us. (laughs) You've loved us with an everlasting love. Lord, free us. Free us from the fearful, frenzied need to present a different face to the reality. Help us to grow in love and in knowledge and in insight. Help us to discern who we are together as your people. Help us to receive in our hearts the affection of Christ Jesus for his church. God, grab us. Grab us by the neck, the whatever, (laughs) with that sense of our final, future, wonderful hope in him. And by your mercy, would you empower us to choose for you steadily and faithfully over a lifetime. Lord, deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from every lesser distraction. Save us from adolescence, oh God. Save us from thinking that it's only real if it's exciting or gives us a buzz. Oh Lord, help us, help us, help us to walk in you by the power of your spirit. And thank you that ultimately you are the initiator and the carrier and the completer of your good purpose for us as your people. Amen. Amen. That's it for this morning. Gosh, an hour feels short, doesn't it? Um, Enjoy the rest of the day. We've got a prayer meeting tonight, so don't drink three pints and fall asleep. Come to the prayer meeting this evening. 7.45 here, in person, we're going to be praying. We've got some Iranian brothers who've been around us for a a while. It's been great to have you guys. Really been wonderful to see you. Uh, And we'd like to spend a bit of time praying for them this evening because, uh, sadly, they're going to have to move uh, as part of their their being in the UK. Uh, And we'd like to pray for them that God would bless and plant them somewhere good and somewhere that would allow them to grow. But we'd also, I think, like to use this prayer of Paul's for ourselves, right? It'd be a bit stupid to preach on one of the biggest, best prayers in the Bible and then to do something different when it came to praying as a church. So be here, 7.45. Please make a choice. Like now, choose in your heart, I'm coming. Uh, And let's be here and let's pray and let's be the people of God together. Amen.